0: Scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. And finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And the 600-year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Teem on the earth and multiply in it. For when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every le- living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I don't think this is unusual, but when I was a, t- a teenager, I went through a whole like rebellion phase. It started right when I went to junior high. And so by the age of 13, I was miserable to be around. In fact, in my mind, even the way that I looked was annoying. Uh, I used to shave the sides of my head, but then I would leave the top like two to three inches long, and I would spike it out. Uh, It looked like I had a spiky mushroom on top of my head. And I would use sunin, if you're familiar with that. It's kind of like a hydrogen peroxide type product. And for me, it just turned my hair orange. And so I looked ridiculous, right? Uh, But then on top of that, I also had a total mouth on me. I was always cutting people down. I would make fun of pretty much everyone. In fact, my first week of 8th grade, I got kicked off the school bus for the rest of the year because I got everyone on the bus to chant a certain thing about a certain kid. I'm not going to repeat what it is cuz I don't want to get kicked out of here either. I mean, it was just bad, right? Uh, so remember this one night my mom and I are arguing across the hallway we're both upstairs. My room was right down the hallway from my parents. And so I'm standing in my doorway just mouthing off to my mom. Of course, in my mind, I know way better than her. I have a total attitude. I'm going to put my mom in her place. And yet, next thing I know, my dad is flying up those stairs. I shared this recently. My dad was a big guy. He was six foot five, intimidating as all get out. And so as he comes up the stairs, I turn and I run into my room. I slam the door behind me, but what he does, he just walks right in comes up to me, grabs me by by the shirt, literally lifts me up off the ground, pins me up against the wall. He goes, you will not talk to your mother that way. To which I kind of thought, he's totally right. (laughs) I will not talk to my mother that way. So when it came to my parents, they had pretty much the same parenting style. Uh, Not that my mom ever held us up against the wall, uh, but they were actually really great parents. They were always kind of a united front, At least that's what they presented to us. And yet what was different about them is while my mom could definitely get mad, only my dad could inflict wrath. What I mean by that, that word wrath, it's this combination of anger and power that you just don't want to mess with. Uh, Just to be clear about something, my dad was this incredible dad. We all knew that he totally loved us, and yet that occasional outburst of wrath would remind us that like any good dad, he would not let us go down a path that was foolish. And so one thing I just knew growing up is when it came to my dad, rebellion is almost always going to lead to wrath. Uh, so today, we're in week two of our sermon series. God of Covenant is what we're calling it. That's because we're looking at the different covenants that God made with his people. Uh, if you are with us last week, one thing we were saying is what a covenant does is it just defines the relationship that God wants with us. So today, it's the covenant that God made with us through Noah in particular. And the thing about it is God made this covenant right in the midst of wrath. Uh, It's this combination of anger and power that you just don't mess with. More specifically, it's this flood that's drowning pretty much the entire world. And you see, it's right in the midst of that that God makes this covenant. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at three things as a whole. Uh, but the first is, I just want to look at this wrath that God has. Like, what is that about? And then after that, we're going to look at two different parts of the covenant that God makes. Uh, but to start with the whole wrath part, I'm just going to put this out there. I don't think anyone likes to talk about the wrath of God. Uh, maybe some Baptists, I don't know. I used to be Baptist, so I think I can say that. Uh, but the whole concept of wrath is just not a kosher topic in our culture. And yet, two things about this. On this front. one is if you go through the Bible, it is totally there. In fact, I was just looking it up this past week. We talk a lot about how loving God is, right? And so how many times do you think something like forgiveness is mentioned in the Bible? It's right around 100. But then you look up, how many times is mercy mentioned in the Bible? Any guesses? It's about 250 for mercy. So what about love, right? Hugely important topic. Love gets mentioned 500 times. What about wrath? It's over 600 times. So you cannot ignore it. And I know some people will say, yeah, but that's the God of the Old Testament. To which I want to say, yeah, I know. By the time it reaches Revelation, that guy totally chills out, Right? No. <laughs> Have you read it? It's a biblical theme. It's just part of who God is. That's the first thing. The second thing is, even though it's not a popular topic in the church, it is a pervasive issue in our lives. Meaning one of the reasons the Bible speaks so regularly about the wrath of God is perhaps because people experience so regularly the wrath of God. And since we don't really name it for what it is anymore, we could be sitting under it, we could be totally feeling it, and yet we do not even know what it is. Much less why it's happening. And so I want to point out a couple different ways we experience the wrath of God. In our passage, uh, it's the flood that literally pours out the wrath of God on the people. And whereas God has said that sort of thing is never going to happen again, that does not mean we don't still have wrath poured out on us. And so just to go through two main ways that it happens. Uh, One of them is we experience God's wrath, what I'm going to call on the level of consequence. And what I mean by that is a lot of sins have consequences just kind of built into them. So for example, just to put some flesh on this, I'll give a few examples. If you take the sin of addiction, You get addicted to some sort of drug, and that could be like a really heavy drug, or it could even be just alcohol, or anything in between, right? Either way, any sort of addiction has consequences built into it. Your body begins to drag, your mind gets kind of fuzzy, you start to lose your personality. You're totally chained down. Your life orbits around that drug. And as part of that, a lot of your relationships begin to fall apart, right? You're just a shell of your former self. Your life begins to unravel. And you see, in the biblical view, none of that is just a random, unfortunate outcome. Instead, it's wrath. Meaning, it is a God-intended consequence inflicted on our sin. And you see, there are a lot of things like that. Uh, So, for example, if you watch pornography... It literally rewires your brain. You're less able to connect with real people. You sleep around a lot. It does kind of the same thing. It makes you less and less able to intimately bomb with another person. Surf the internet all day and you feel totally empty at the end of it. Live your life on social media. You get scatterbrained. You don't think deeply anymore. Talk a lot of crap behind other people's backs. Your level of anxiety goes up. It's literally what happens. There's a proven link between gossip and anxiety. And so again, that is not just random It is rebellion, and rebellion leads to wrath. In other words, it's us living contrary to the will of God and facing built-in consequences as a result. And see, that's what I'm calling wrath on the level of consequence. I would imagine you can think of examples in your own life, if only because I know I can think of plenty of examples in my own life, we're living against God's will either has caused or is causing. A lot of pain. The other kind I'll mention is wrath on the level of conscience. So not consequence, but conscience. You see, the thing about this, it seems, just sometimes you can rebel against the will of God and it seems like you totally get away with it. Uh, you rob a bank and the only consequence is a second home in Santa Barbara. It's amazing. That's kind of silly, maybe more real, realistic. Oh, you got the guy who leaves his family for some new fling. I've been a pastor for 10 years, and I've seen it a bunch. And what it looks like is the only consequence is that guy is a lot happier. Never mind the destruction that he has left in his wake, he's doing great. And so it's a pretty common idea that whereas some sins definitely have consequences, other sins you can totally get away with. And yet it's not at all true. You see, because there is another kind of wrath that gets poured out on every single kind of sin. There's no escaping it. And what it is, it is the wrath of God that affects our conscience. And what I mean by that is any kind of rebellion against the will of God is always going to separate us from the presence of God. And I totally realize in saying that some people will be like, whatever, not a big deal to me. And yet relationship with God is the most meaningful part of who we are. And so to lose that is to lose your real self. And in particular, to lose that is to let your heart harden. And that's because it's closed off to the love of God. And so you have this weird division within yourself, where on this one hand, you kind of like your sin, but on the other hand, you wish it were not part of your life. If only because no sin is life-giving. And so one way to think about it, I was trying to think of like, How do you think about this? Uh, You take a bright and beautiful flower. That's the human spirit. Bright and beautiful flower. But then you just put a big bucket over it. That's our rebellion. We want to do our own thing, so we hide ourselves from the light of God. And what happens is over time, that bright and beautiful flower begins to weaken, wilt, and wither. The color fades out of its petals. It loses its vitality. It is not nearly as alive as it was before. And you could ask, why? Why? What happened to the flower? It cut itself off from the one thing that could really give it life, namely the love of God. You see, that's what I'm calling wrath on the level of conscience. It's that even if there aren't obvious consequences for our sin, there's always the consequence of being alienated from the Lord. The result of which is a lot of us are just a shell of who he created us to be. So that's the wrath of God. Like I said, whereas there's not going to be another huge flood that destroys the whole earth, that does not mean a lot of us aren't still drowning. Either in some pretty rough consequences or in the pain of an unclean conscience. So let's go to the next part. This is getting into the covenant that God makes with us through Noah. Uh, It's made right in the midst of that wrath and there are pretty much two parts to it. So just a Start with the first. This is gonna seem random, but a week ago, I was out on a walk in the morning. We moved in this new house up in Saugus. It was one of those days that you knew it was gonna be hot. I think it was supposed to be in the 80s, but it was still kind of cool in the morning. It was really pleasant out. So I'm on the sidewalk walking down our street, and in front of this one house there's this big worm that had come out of the grass. It's kind of a nasty little thing. You know, sometimes for whatever reason, worms will come out of the grass and they'll try to cross this long stretch of pavement. Uh, Not at all smart. And this dude's actually heading onto the sidewalk, but he does not realize that right after that is the road. (laughs) So if he's going to get to more grass, it's going to be like 30 or 40 feet with cars flying by. Uh, And I'm looking at this. Call me a tree hugger if you want. Worm hugger, whatever. Uh, But I just felt bad for the little guy. I figured by the time he gets to the asphalt, he is just going to start cooking. And so what I did is I stooped down. I little started to flick this little guy. (laughs) I was really gentle at first. I was just kind of nudging him. But even that, he was just like, "Eh." you know, he kind of curled up, get off me. And so I started flicking him a little harder, like, come on, buddy. And then he got a little really wacky, like flopping on the ground. It's this battle going on between us. And so eventually, I did not want to do this. I had just taken a shower, but I picked that guy up. and I flung him into the grass. And So finally, I think he's going to be fine. Uh, So I go to the end of the street, turn around, start coming back. I get to the same house that same stupid little worm, is right back on the sidewalk. So it's pretty much the same thing all over again. I did the nudge, I did the flick, and then I did the full-on toss. This time I'm pretty sure I saw him duck into the grass, no idea about the fate of the worm. Uh, One thing about this though, I would imagine for the worm everything I was doing felt totally miserable. Whether it was the nudge, the flick, or the toss, I am sure in his mind it was just like, what are you doing? You are totally hurting me, and yet on my end, two things. Number one, I could see where he was headed. He could not. Number two, I was just trying to save him. If you go to our passage, one thing about the flood that happens. Yeah, it's because of the wrath of God that that is happening, and yet it is not like God is just vindictive, mad, or mean. It's not like he just wants to hurt us. It's none of that. It's because when we rebel against his will, number one, he can see precisely where we are are headed. Typically, we can't. Number two, he's really just trying to save us. See, the whole point of the flood, the wrath, is to lead people into the ark. In other words, the whole point of God inflicting wrath on us, whether it is the wrath of consequences or the wrath of conscience, the reason that he does that is because he cares about you. And so it's not uncommon for it to begin like a gentle nudge. There's just a little bit of pain because of our rebellion. But then eventually that nudge becomes more like a flick. Meaning either the consequences get worse or our conscience becomes more guilty. And then eventually, if we do not pay attention to that, sometimes a flick becomes a full-on toss. Meaning our whole life gets turned upside down, things begin to unravel, everything's to be, everything seems to be spinning out of control which just means the wrath of God is beginning to overwhelm you. And yet here's the thing. It is not because he hates you and wants you to drown in your sin. No, it is because he loves you. And wants you to take refuge in his grace. See, part of this covenant that we have through Noah is prior to us drowning in our rebellion, God always provides an ark of salvation. Not just back then, but now. And I don't mean that literally. The Old Testament ark is really just pointing to a New Testament reality. It's communicating something about how to be saved. So let me try to explain it. Uh, In our passage, if you could ask the question, what is the purpose, what's the purpose of the ark? Now, it's meant to be refuge from wrath. And so in the New Testament, what is our refuge from wrath? It's Christ. Uh, He takes people in, right? Just like the ark took people in. So in our passage, how do you enter into the ark? There's an opening in the side. In the New Testament, how do you enter into Christ? There's an opening in his side. If you remember, when he got crucified, he got pierced with a spear, and what that did, according to the early church, is it opened up a door to the heart of Christ, out of which grace pours, right? Uh, And so in our passage, how many people follow Noah, into the ark. It's seven. In the New Testament, what does the number seven represent? It's the church. Church is referred to as the number seven repeatedly. In other words, it is the people who follow the call of Christ to take refuge in his grace. And so you could ask, why does God inflict wrath on us? It is not because he wants to see us suffer. It is because he wants to see us get saved. In other words, he wants to lead us into the heart of Christ. That's the real ark of salvation. And what you're going to do if you find that is the wrath of God subsides. It does. It subsides. And this wasn't part of our reading, but in Genesis, when the rain of wrath begins to stop, what happens is a dove brings an olive branch to the ark. It's this incredibly symbolic act. Uh, What it's communicating is when you get into the ark of God's grace, the spirit of God, that's the dove, he's going to bring you peace. And so that does beg the question: How do you actually get in the ark? How do you enter into the heart of Christ? And the answer given in our passage, it's really simple. It's "You've got to leave behind the life that is drowning you. Which, if we're just honest, it's simple, but it's hard. Because for some reason, we get attached to things that drown us. Uh, But the question we've got to ask ourselves in the midst of of this is, do I want to die like this? Never changing. Uh, So if we can trace back our steps. Rebellion is always going to lead to wrath. Wrath is really meant to lead us to refuge. And now the third part of our passage is refuge is always going to lead to renewal. So in the past year or so, I've been ministering to an old friend of mine. He's not part of the church here, so don't try to guess who I'm talking about. Uh, But for the last several years, he's been caught up in a lot of drinking. Uh, he is a heavy and habitual consumer of alcohol. And the thing is, if you look at him, you can tell it's just ruining his life. The thing is, I wouldn't say his life is a total disaster. (laughs) kind of holding it together. He's still able to keep a job. He's still incredibly smart. He seems relatively healthy. And you put that aside for a second, and you can see it. He's drowning. He literally can't not have a drink. The thing is, he's sort of trying to fight it. It's not like he's just given into it, uh, but the way he's trying to fight it is he's just trying to manage it. This makes me think of all of us with our sin. He's trying to manage it. He's trying to limit the effects. He's just trying to kind of keep it in check. In other words, he's just trying to keep his head above water. Which is so incredibly frustrating to see. If only because what I want to see is, I want to see him get in that ark, right? Meaning, I want, to, I want him to leave that life that someday guaranteed is going to overtake and drown him. And yet whenever we talk about this, all that he can see is that would be leaving, what, is what he would be leaving behind if he did that. Like No more drinking? I can't do that. And yet what I can see, and it is clear as day to me, is on the other side of that flood is a new life for him. And if he just got out of the flood, if he just surrendered his will, if he got into the ark of God's grace, the outcome would not be some sort of barren or boring or miserable life. It would be a life that is abundant and free for him. You see, if you go to our passage, one thing you notice, after the flood subsides, God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. And if you think about it, the only other time that he said that is when he created us. Be fruitful and multiply is what he said to Adam and Eve. You see, the fact that he says it again in this passage is communicating, if you get into the ark of salvation, meaning you take refuge in the grace of God, the outcome of that is a new life. It's a new start. It's something fresh. It's something better than before. And so when you leave behind the life or the habits that are drowning you, it's not a miserable thing. It is freedom. And so the order we see in the passage, a rebellion always leads to wrath. Wrath is meant to lead us to refuge. Jesus and refuge in Jesus always leads to renewal. And that's the second part of the covenant God makes with Noah. It's the promise of a new life. So if I can just finish by pointing out two things about that new life that God gives to us. The first thing is according to a particular passage in 1 Peter. So it's not our reading today, but 1 Peter. Everything that God promised in the covenant with Noah is precisely what he promises in the covenant of baptism. You can kind of see the parallel with the water, right? This is from 1 Peter 3.21. It's actually talking about the flood, flood and it essentially says that everything that happened in the flood corresponds to the meaning of baptism. Namely, God does not just want to drown you. He wants to give you new life. That's precisely what the covenant of baptism confers. It is a new life. If only the baptized would actually lay hold of that, right? Uh, The other part of it, of this new life, as part of this new life that God gives to Noah, he says in our passage, anytime there's a storm, there's going to be a rainbow. And what that's meant to convey is anytime we begin to rebel again, even after we've been given this new life, anytime we begin to rebel again and the clouds of God's wrath begin to block out the light of his love for us, what he has done is he's put a rainbow in the sky. And when you look at that rainbow, it is meant to be a guarantee that even in the midst of wrath, God is still for you. So in the early church, they were thinking a lot about this whole covenant with Noah on the rainbow and everything like that. And what they noticed was when Christ was on the cross, the whole earth got dark. Clouds, right, came around. And what that meant is the wrath of God was being poured out once again. And yet, up in the sky, hoisted up, was a rainbow. That's what they said. Uh, But not literally a rainbow. It was Christ, hoisted up on the cross. And they would see the red of his blood, and they would see all the different colors pouring out of his body, the blue and the purple. And the early church said, there it is. That is the rainbow of God's grace in the sky of his wrath. See, even after you have been given a new life, there are going to be times that you stumble and fall. Which means there are also going to be times you find yourself feeling the wrath of God again. And yet, right in the midst of that, God has given us a guarantee of his love that on the cross, Christ himself bore that wrath. And what poured out of him was the blood of a new covenant that we celebrate every time we take communion. Communion that that is the rainbow, that even in this new life, after we have left behind the life that was making us drown, we still stumble. We still fall off the ark and begin to drown again. And yet God gave us this gift of communion to be the real rainbow in the midst of that. So when we take it, if we are truly repentant, when we do, we can be truly confident in the love that God has for us. So I guess what I'm saying is the covenant with Noah was always intended to point us to the covenant we have with Christ. So I hope this has been moderately helpful. I know it's kind of a long sermon. I'll just finish with that. If you're drowning, please know that there is an ark. His name is Jesus. Jesus. So let's pray. God in heaven, you're a good father who never disciplines his children because he hates them, but precisely because he loves them. And so, Father, whenever we're drowning in our rebellion, lead us to the ark that is Christ. God, get us out of the water. Get us into his grace. Get us to realize this new life that you have planned for us. We want to be free and fruitful in this life. And so we lay ourselves before you so that by the blood of an everlasting covenant, you would make us a new creation. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.